Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is a very special one, Professor Stuart McCauley. Professor McCauley needs no introduction, but I will still do my best. Professor McCauley is one of the common law world's leading scholars of the law of contracts and of the law in action approach to the study of law. Since the late 1950s, he has published numerous groundbreaking articles, casebooks focused on the teaching of contracts and the concept of law in action. That's the very same law in action that this podcast is named after, by the way. Professor McCauley's work is an absolute must read for legal scholars and has also attracted attention from scholars in other disciplines such as sociology and economics. While I could go on about Professor McCauley's accomplishments and accolades, we are here today to discuss a new book that collects works from the past 60 years that may not have been previously widely available. The book is called Stuart McCauley, Selected Works, and is now available from Springer. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor McCauley. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for having me. It's an absolute privilege. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So we usually start our podcast by asking about our guests' background, specifically their research and scholarly writing interests. So let's talk about what first drew you to writing about contracts and law in action. Well, uh, I... I liked contracts as a student. It was a subject that I liked. Uh, I did fairly well at the Stanford Law School. I got to be uh, Chief Judge William Denman's uh, law clerk. That's, he was the Chief Judge of the Federal uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And then I went to uh, uh, University of Chicago, and this was Chicago at the time of the jury project was going on there, which was one of the first big uh, attempts to study uh, something quite important other than the, uh, the law and the books and this sort of thing. Um, and then I wound up at Wisconsin. Now, to get the job at Wisconsin, I was looking very uh, uh, craftily, I hope, uh, at, at what was it they would likely need. I mean, and, and you could say you wanted to teach constitutional law, but hey, I, Everybody wanted to teach constitutional law. So what was it they, they were likely to need that I could stomach? <laughs> There's some of them I didn't want to teach. And that was contract. So I, uh, I, I did that and uh, pushed very, very much along those lines. Um, and of course, being uh, fairly, uh, not, well, not quite as dumb as I look, uh, I... Uh, used the contracts case book that was being used by the professors here at Wisconsin. And that was Lon Fuller's case book on contract, which was a very radical book for its time. Uh, the whole idea was they, they put damage, he put damages first. Uh, you started talking about remedies. And uh, again, a, a legal realist, he was saying, who gives a damn? And that really is the, the, the subheading of the first chapter is uh, don't, don't spend your time pondering offer and acceptance, unless you know what difference it makes. Mm -hmm. And so it was very much that way. So I was reading all of Fuller's writings and doing all of this kind of thing, uh, trying to figure out what the great man was talking about so I'd have something to uh, uh, deal with in class. My late wife, uh, she took care of me very well. she said I was the boy wonder. It was a wonder they had a boy doing a man's job. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're, you're about 10 seconds ahead of your class when you're a beginner and doing these kinds of things. 
So I was trying to master uh, all of the Fuller stuff and so on. Um, Jackie uh, was the daughter of the retired former general manager of S.C. Johnson and Sons in Racine. And of course, we had to take uh, our young one over to uh, uh, meet the grandparents and so forth and so on. And he asked me, well, what was I teaching in this contracts course? And I started explaining Fuller and Purdue, Fuller's idea of the three interests. There was the expectation, the reliance, the restitution. Well, what are they? Well, the expectation was that the law of contract damages tries to put you where you would have been had the contract been performed. That's the standard. He, I don't know if it's fair to say, roared, maybe to those. No! <laughs> if you have to even talk to a lawyer, you will not be where you would have been had the contract been performed. Oh, I said. And they told me two stories, or really one big story. Um, during the Depression, when he was the head of Johnson's, um, there were three companies that supplied the, the containers that their products were put into. In those days, there were tin cans. They'd be plastic bottles today. Um, and Johnson's, during the Depression, tried to place their orders with the firm that needed the most to stay alive. I mean, this is a world that we have trouble seeing just how bad it was. We think we've been through some bad times, but that was even worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, so th they were doing that. They could have had them bid against each other to, to lower the price. And, and that's right. No, they didn't do that. They, they, they uh, tried to keep all three of them in business. And he said, about five years later, we were in World War II. Uh, and you can imagine what the ration, and, and steel was rationed. And you can imagine what the ration for cans to put floor wax in might <laughs> Almost nothing. He said, but we never wanted a can. They owed us one. And that, and notice, not a matter of contract, because there was, they, they order, there was an order, that part of thing, but the thought that you were going to make up for it in World War II, that wasn't part of the contract. That was part of keeping long-term continuing relations going. Well, I had that, at that point, I fell down the rabbit hole to Wonderland, <laughs> what the way business and, and, and uh, worked. And he said, well, now, you, you, I, I know that I'm, uh, an old man and a curmudgeon and so forth, and you're, you're not, you're not going to believe me. Why don't you talk to some of my friends? You begin seeing where this is going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so um, I did. And uh, they, they started telling me stories. Now, of course, if you talk to salespeople, they're not quite the same as you're talking to purchasing agents. If you're talking to people in finance, they're a little, their stories are a little different. And if you talk to the lawyers, the in-house counsel and the outside lawyers. And I talked to all of these people. Uh, the stories are a little bit different, but basically uh, suing people for breach of contract and spending time negotiating and such uh, just didn't strike them as something that, that they wanted to do too much of. Now, there were cases where you did, but those were special cases. It wasn't the general situation. There was uh, much more uh, reliance on long-term continuing relations. Well, does that do it? 
<laughs> well, yes, that's amazing. That is what a great story to start this whole thing out with. I love hearing how this all started and about just that discussion with, with the grandparents <laughs> has yeah. led to a series of groundbreaking case books that just to start studying that and going down the rabbit hole, as you said, where you're Alice and Alice's contract wonderland. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, of course, I should make very clear that I was having lunch once a week with Willard Hurst, who was very much my mentor. And Willard would, he kindly suggest I should read this or I should read that. I was getting quite a reading list. <laughs> um, and at the same time, my wife, Jackie, was, uh, she was a graduate student in social psychology. So I, I had a lot, of, a lot of help going on. It wasn't a, a completely ad-libbing thing. The boy wonder had a little bit of support from Batman and from other places as well. Yeah, exactly. in there. <laughs> well, this, this all led, of course, to having so many of your articles and your books make such an impact on the legal world in contracts and otherwise. But let's focus on the newest collection, the Springer's work about selected works. Uh, it's divided into four parts. And the first section contains two essays that provide fresh accounts of your work as a whole and serve as an introduction to your scholarship. How do these essays help guide new researchers and how do they begin reviewing your scholarship? Well, uh, very flattering uh, sort of thing. Uh, and I think for me, I see them as very well done. Now, again, we're talking about three of my good friends, uh, Brian Bix, who does the one on contracts. Uh, again, looking and trying to say that it's one thing to worry about offer and acceptance and good stuff like that. Which is part, I, I, I'm often taken as saying that, uh, uh, you, know, contract, there, you know, contract law is irrelevant. No, 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 it's relevant sometimes, but which times? That's the key thing. And uh, so, and he, he makes that point that, that uh, let's look at contract law as delivered. You have to go get it. It doesn't have little legs and crawl down off the statute books for you. It, uh, and going and getting it means you have to pay somebody some money. Uh, that, that's one of the things I'm very proud of the, in our contracts case book. Uh, and it's been there for, in the various editions. First case, uh, the last paragraph in it denies uh, lawyers fees because that's not part of the damages. And that's edited out when that case is used by many, many other case books. We have that front and center. That, uh, you know, that, that's, and notice, it's, you have to, you're handicapping a horse race. Uh, yes, it's gonna cost me this amount of money to get what amount of bad damages? If I win. <laughs> so it, 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 deciding to go ahead and, and just bring a contracts lawsuit is a tough decision. Uh, uh, one of the propositions is simple. Law isn't free. Now, you know, some places, somehow it, it can be helped out, but most of the time you have to buy your own lawyer and your expert witnesses and so on. And then you're always up to, well, what's the payoff? Maybe it's just a claim in bankruptcy. So it, it's, a, it's a tough kind of thing. And I, and I want that at the beginning of my contracts course. That, right, uh, there's some cruel arithmetic that goes into filing a contracts lawsuit, say absolutely. who's getting it. And, and, and you study it. Now, part of this comes back to uh, Frank Remington put it very well. Uh, 
he was the great con uh, criminal law uh, scholar who, who did wonderful things for this law school. Um, he said that if, if you wanted to understand the criminal law, uh, first you better figure out the elements of the crimes and all that good stuff, you know. What, what does it take to have a burglary, you know, a one, two, three, so on. You gotta do that. But then he says, what you wanna do is get a ride in a squad car in a big city on a hot summer night. <laughs> I always like that uh, as a, a good story because it's quite true. Beth Mertz, who uh, is involved in this second part of this, this thing, uh, made the point she does have a PhD in anthropology. And when you've done the ride in the squad car, find a way to get in the crowd looking at the squad car. <laughs> it's three sides to the same coin, so to speak. You have the elements, you have you're in the squad car, now you're facing the crowd seeing what the squad car is doing. And you put those together and you're starting to see the whole picture here. That's right. And I think, again, in contracts, are we going to spend time negotiating? And sometimes we are. Mm -hmm. Are we going, what do we, what do, we do if there's trouble? Um, one of my favorite stories in the contract thing, um, a student in my contract class was older and he had been a salesman of machinery that uh, uh, went into paper mills. And this was a, a day in which Wisconsin had lots and lots of paper mills in the uh, northeastern part of the state. And uh, he uh, described, uh, he had a Lincoln. Why did he drive a Lincoln? It had the biggest trunk of any car available. And in that trunk, he could put tools and parts. And if one of the paper making machines had broke, broke down, the guy who was the head of the factory would call him. And at night when nobody else knew that the machine had broken down, the two of them would fix it. And you see, the, the, guy, the guy in the factory didn't want people to know that the machine he had lobbied for and recommended wasn't perfect. The salesman wanted, did this kind of thing. I just was fascinated with that. That's an agreement to, hey, this is a great piece of machinery. It never breaks that you know of. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But again, it, it starts talking about the power of long-term continued relationship. Because the salesman would like to sell something else again, thank you. And the uh, person who's running the factory would like to keep his position and his recommendations having some bite mm -hmm. within his own operation. Right. It's a, it's a mutually uh, agreeable position to get that fixed and have them saying, look, we have this great position going forward uh, mm -hmm. that we are in agreement and keeping it a relationship strong that way. Right. Right. Now. Uh, again, you will find big multi-million dollar contracts and uh, where it is worth going to court and this, this body of law can be used, but when and, it, and what else is going on? There, there, it's only one sort of uh, uh, normative and sanction system. The long-term continued relations are very important. And so uh, essentially Brian Bix suggests that uh, uh, I'm saying, you know, let's see the whole picture. Let's let it, because we are going to start uh, saying, well, this is a good rule because it'll lead to this conclusion. You see, the, the, you're, you're judging rules as to what's going to happen. 
Well, one way you can do that is play a kind of law and economics game that I don't like very well, which is look at the ceiling and see what a reasonable man would do. And uh, which is a way of simply saying what, what I would do, of course. Mm -hmm. And of course, you get, you get some, uh, there, there, there are a couple of uh, uh, opinions by uh, University of Chicago type, uh, who's now an appellate judge on the Seventh Circuit, where he talks about when you get a product, the first thing you do is you open up the box, you get the owner's manual out, and you read what the warranties would be. <laughs> I, I cocked an eyebrow when you said that. Yeah, I want to know what world he lives in. <laughs> it isn't the one I live in, for sure. <laughs> Just crazy. Well, but on the other hand, once we have a picture of this kind of thing, then we can make much better judgments about, well, what's likely to happen if, you see, and if that's, that's what you're doing. So, uh, Brian Fix opens that up, and then uh, more generally, if you want to know what's going on, that leads to the, the next article. Again, two of my best friends. Uh, I, I met Lawrence, I think, in 1959. So we've been friends for a long time and written articles together. And we've got the, the sociology of law materials we put together uh, in the mid-60s. So um, going through four editions and that. And they talk about the kinds of things I've been interested in and, and, and written about. Um, and really, again, it's, it's, it's saying uh, you're teaching law, you're te people that are going to become lawyers. Um, there's more to it than just what the, you know, what are the, what constitutes consideration? Now, you have to know that, but uh, that's a little like saying you're, you, if you memorize the handbook, uh, but have never driven a car. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want you, you know, driving it, me around. So if you, yeah, that's the case, yeah, you, yeah. you, you, you sort. There's a little more to it than just memorizing the the handbook. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and and they looked at. It. So I would I would uh, I'm I'm very honored, flattered, and a little little bit uh, a little imposter syndrome <laughs> comes in when your good friends are that nice to you. <laughs> I wish I had friends that nice. I'm going to ask my friends to write essays in my honor and see what they come up with. It's not going to be pretty, but I'll try it anyway. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, so let's take, let's move on to the second part of the book, which focuses on uh, work that has been previously less available, specifically on the contracts area. Yeah. Um, so why are they uh, deserving of inclusion here? And are there any that you are especially happy to see receive more attention? Well, yeah. Well, uh, all of them, I would say. I know, that's kind of a tough question. <laughs> yeah, because of course they are things that are hidden away. We have one that was published in Spanish. Now, there are a lot of people in this world speak Spanish, but uh, a lot of people don't. So it's, mm. that limits what you do. Uh, and the talk I gave in Lima, uh, I guess in the 1990s and such, you have things like that. Um, I'm not there, and there are a number of papers that I gave on, on trips to Europe, and uh, that, that's nice. But I think the, the two I will say something about here um, uh, is the one on lawyer advertising, and then the one that comes after it called private government. Because one, it can't, uh, the story of the two was I was working on the lawyer advertising thing. Now, this is right when uh, we knocked down the rules that said lawyers couldn't advertise. And then what you got were the people that were saying the, you know, 
the world has come to an end. Law is no longer a profession. It's going to be everybody out there hustling the product and all of this versus suddenly the world is a great place. People will, uh, you know, be directed to people that can help them and so on. And just overstatements on both sides. Uh, and I, I tried to look at the arguments that were being made and what evidence there was and uh, suggested that maybe the real question, which was access to justice, uh, was being hidden and that, that just making lawyers more available in the telephone book or, or uh, uh, the blurb on the television set and so forth uh, doesn't exactly get you into court. I mean, it, it's, it may help a little, but it's not, it's, it's not enough. Um, well, what happened was I submitted that to the University of Michigan Law Review. And they didn't decide, didn't decide. Then we went through a whole summer and they weren't doing anything. I was asked to write the thing on private government for this book. And it also turned out that um, uh, they had some problems, the, the editors of the book, uh, and one was Stan Wheeler, which was another good friend of mine. And Stan was, was saying, well, a lot of people who were going to write for them uh, dropped out. But he thought there should be something about this. Isn't there a private government aspect to this? <laughs> he kept kind of add a section on this and so forth. And a lot of it was looking at uh, all of the people who essentially were legal philosophers. And most of them from coming from a Marxist position, this kind of thing. And, you know, what, and this was very popular. This is what a lot of people were writing about uh, at the time and such. And I am, well, I, I, I try to read philosophers and things like that, but I, I wouldn't ever try to write something. That just isn't me. I, I, uh, I just don't have the background. I think you to, to, to dare go in that, you have to have read one heck of a lot and mastered one heck of a lot. And I haven't, I, and, and, and not in a systematic way. It's sort of, I pick up things that look interesting and the, that leaves lots of holes going <laughs> in this way. So, but I, I sort of took them on and I tried to say, well, if we think of law as delivered, is it gonna have these you know, is it going to mystify people as the uh, uh, Marxist types started talking about? Well, it maybe middle class people get mystified. I'm not sure they do because people uh, t tend to work it out. But uh, a lot of people, a pretty good idea of, of what law as delivered looks like uh, and, and such. It's not that they like it. Uh, they're not mystified into saying this is the greatest place in the world. Um, you, and I, I just was saying we, we had to, before we, we had this idea of mystification. Now, does it mystify sometimes? Sure. But under what circumstances? How much? Uh, what else is going on? And so forth. Uh, indeed, one of the things coming out of the uh, uh, sociology of law kind of thing was a study and uh, uh, the people people have an idea. They sort of figure out what the law must be, because that's what I think is reasonable, and that's what I do. I mean, people generally don't sit around reading law books. That this is not how most people. And 
maybe they learn about Miranda warnings watching television or something like that. But you know, it, it's it's uh, it, it's one of those uh, those kinds of situations. Well, uh, we had a uh, uh, in our uh, political times protests against the war in Vietnam, late '60s and so forth. We had a, a young man who had something to do with uh, with the uh, uh, birds on the lawn. You know how on the lawn of Bascom Hill? Oh, yeah, the flamingos, right. Mm -hmm. Flamingos and, and all of that. He was a part of all of that. He mm -hmm. ran for district judge uh, in, in the thing. He'd, he'd gone to law school and, and this kind of thing. And, but he was all involved in protests and stuff. And part of his campaign poster was a thing, obey good laws. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is more American than right. that. <laughs> yeah. That's a political so, slogan to end all political slogans right there. <laughs> there you go. And so, uh, you know, uh, so the idea that people are mystified it strikes me as, it, it, yeah, to some degree, maybe, and so forth, but, but a kind of general notion that these fools just are there thinking that the uh, uh, the laws are all, uh, you know, the power, it doesn't exist and such. People have some idea about what's going on mm -hmm. and such. And, and really, we had to look at the law as delivered and who gets what knowledge and so forth. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, that's in the private government article. And it was, I found it quite challenging because here I was reading a lot of stuff that was new to me, um, but it, it was the popular thing at that time. So um, I was working on that. It was very hard. And then the University of Michigan law folks come back with a lawyer advertising piece and they want all kinds of changes. But essentially uh, what they were upset about being good third year law students is they wanted some answers. And the, the article says, hey, wait a minute, to find out what lawyer advertising will do is going to be a very tough empirical question. And I haven't got any answers, but nobody else does either. <laughs> and no, no, they wanted, they wanted me to, to, to come down with. And so I, I just basically put that aside and thought, well, I'd get back to it if, uh, once, I got, once I got the private government thing done. Well, private government thing really took all the time. And by the time I wanted to get back to it. It just, this, this became the, the uh, one for the file drawer. All right. And now it has seen the light of day. So that's great. It's now seen the light of day. And it's probably, and now it's, it's obviously quite dated. Uh, but on the other hand, it still raises some questions about lawyer advertising that we can, uh, uh, you know, open up things. Right. And access to justice is, of course, still a very relevant topic that is yes. being discussed and debated about how to get people in rural areas or low income or whoever access to it, And the rural area problem, you know, the, we have this problem. Uh, we haven't got any doctors for them and we haven't got any lawyers for them. And we have the whole business of uh, how, do you, how do you get a defense lawyer so that you can have a trial? Mm -hmm. uh, right. More complicated. I don't understand why you couldn't come up with an answer for those you, you of them. Uh, <laughs> third-year law students at the time. I don't think we really have a good answer yet. But uh, I don't think so either. So, so I, I would say I, I kind of like the fact that the private government is, is more available to people. 
because it was it was a book, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but uh, but having lawyer advertising there too is, is at least uh, ra- there's some parts of it that still are alive and relevant. Mm-hmm. That's great. It helps flesh out your career more as you are exploring the different areas. Like you said, you were with private government, you were in a new area for you, which I think helps you to, it challenges you to write oh, more. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you're, and you're, you're, you're sitting there thinking, Oh my God, I've said this. And maybe anybody that knows the area will know this, ha- this isn't because Jones said this and, <laughs> and you don't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It puts you on the stressor, but also makes you hopefully write at a higher level. And so I will take it. Then. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident you wrote at a higher level with that one. I'm fair to say. <laughs> uh, so let's move on to the third part of the book. This is your core works on contracts. What aspects of these works have made them so endearing and so influential? Well, a lot of people had, had, come up with ideas about how the law of contracts was what kept uh, free market uh, economic systems going, that it was critically important. And that this, there's an, Hernan de Soto has a book that was uh, reviewed in the Yale Law Journal at the time uh, in the 90s and so forth, where he was very critical of situation in Peru where he, 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 uh, worked uh, because the merchants and such were dealing with long-term continued relations. That's what they did. They didn't go to courts because their courts were just completely out of reach for them. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, this just cuts down the amount of transactions. Now, being a good economist type, what he really wants is sort of an auction market with anybody can bid on the whole thing and that this... uh, uh, you know, sets up and so on. And here what we've got is a, a system where we can rely on people because uh, uh, they want to stay part of the family. Well, uh, I, I, in, in that kind of a piece, I uh, uh, wanted to, to say, well, look, uh, there, there's something to this long-term continued relationship. It means that contract law sometimes will be very important, but sometimes not. And I, I think that that's part of it. Now, I have been taken, the, 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 the person who really lit into me was Grant Gilmore, who was a famous law professor, University of Chicago, Yale Law School, and so on. Um, and he called me uh, the Lord High Executioner of the Contract is Dead movement. Well, it's cute. <laughs> I have to give him that. Quite the honorific you've earned on that one. Wow. Yeah. I'm impressed. And, and of course, I didn't think contract law was dead. I, <laughs> I, when it's alive, it's, it's like, well, the analogy I, I used in responding to him was the dead rattlesnake. When I was a little boy in Laguna Beach, California, uh, there were rattlesnakes along the cliffs overlooking the beach. And the thing that they would tell a little boy is never pick up a dead rattlesnake. Because, of course, the rattlesnake sunning itself out there looks dead (laughs) and is quite alive. (laughs) And I think contract law is is a bit of a dead rattlesnake, if you are are going saying this. When it's alive, it can bite. 
And it, even if it looks like it's dead, it can come back to bite you. <laughs> That's right. So, so there's the reasons for doing these kinds of things. Uh, so um, I, I think that, that just saying, let's look at law as delivered. This, this is the, the uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to me such a, as a big, exciting thing to say. <laughs> and, and the old legal realists, after all, they, they saw it and, and they said that they were, that we should do empirical research, but uh, they never got around to doing very much of it. <laughs> they, they, it was a good, they, Carl Llewellyn has, uh, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on which Indian tribe it is. It's an Indian tribe and uh, the, that, uh, he, he, he went and studied. The answer was he interviewed people for 10 days. That was it. Hmm. Well, uh, an awful lot was filled in with Llewellyn's imagination. You know, but in any event, it, it, uh, uh, it, it was good. He, he, he had a good imagination. It, 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 it's a contribution, but uh, uh, there was a lot more that could have been done. And suddenly I just said, hey, wait a minute, let's, let's look at this. And I had interviewed people um, and, and uh, found some things. Now, I also uh, have to say, one, I had Willard Hurst, who was uh, my mentor. And then Willard sent me to, see, to take a trip to New York. And Willard had a big Ford Foundation grant. So, uh, uh, you know, it uh, was nice that it, paid for the plane trip, and uh, I went to New York to see his friend Bob. Bob was Robert Merton, maybe the most famous sociologist going at that time. <laughs> so Bob invited me to give the paper at an American Sociological Association meeting, and uh, I did. And then uh, Bob told the uh, American Sociological Re uh, Review that they ought to publish it. <laughs> disinterested blind review <laughs> and the rest is history as they say yeah it does help to know that exactly it does help and then the that paper of course went on to have an enormous impact all over the place which is wonderful so on to the fourth part you mentioned the old legal realists now let's talk about the new legal realism and how you wrote about that a little bit you began writing about legal realism a little bit later in your career what motivated you to kind of turn your writing towards legal re legal realism and law and action well again we were thinking about uh legal education and could, how could we get people in law schools to pay more attention to things like this that uh, uh it isn't just contracts that has to be delivered. All bodies of law have to be delivered. And uh, uh, there is a question where they come from and the choices made uh, as to what laws we enforce. Uh, it's you know very, very complicated. And so if you're gonna teach administrative law, uh, there should be some empirical side to it as the way things work and, and, and so forth. Uh, well, uh, there were a lot of people talking about it. And we were starting to get um, a group of people uh, on various law faculties who had both a law degree and a PhD in a social science. Uh, Beth Mertz is a good example. She has a PhD in anthropology and 
uh, a Northwestern Law School uh, degree, and and this that's, and and there are others too that are around and, and so forth. And um, one of the things that happened was there was a a group of people uh, who started uh, applying. Uh, you know, state-of-the-art statistics to government uh, data sets. And it tended to be a thing for law professors to learn how to do this, these statistics and do this kind of thing. Um, and and uh, we've got uh, all kinds of things. Well, one of the things that happens, of course, is state-of-the-art statistics applied to bad data produce bad studies. I mean, you fancy statistics doesn't make a, a, you know bad data get better. Uh, you you can control for some things, but it's still uh, bad data is bad data. And if you're talking about government data, there have been lots of exposés of say the police statistics in New York City, the crime statistics. Uh, it can't make the police look bad. And so we have our ways of uh, adjusting it so that it comes out. What you want apparently is you don't want crime to go be rocketing up to scare the public, but you want a little bit so you'll get more appropriations. Sweet spot <laughs> of stats there. <laughs> there you go, there you go. And. Uh, Apparently, one of the things that one of the, the exposés that I always have used me is a, was a homeless person who had been killed. You just marked it down. It was a, you know, a homeless person dead. It didn't, it, it, no, no, the police weren't going to look into it uh, and, and this sort of thing, but it wasn't going to be put down as a murder. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, there are all kinds of little goodies like that. And, and again, somebody has to, there's the event that happened in the world, and then somebody has to put it in a little box, uh, has to categorize it and put it someplace. Well, uh, one of the things that we really, and, and Beth Mertz and I, it was Beth got me into the thing, and we were talking about, uh, we had to, we really had to translate that, that social science didn't give you a bunch of facts just sitting there to pick up and plug into your grand theory that, that you had to know what its limits were what it was good for and sometimes you had to recognize that if it was an important question the word you should use the best methods and as i used to t point out to my class the word best may mean least bad <laughs> All too true, right, right. And, and if you think about studying things in the law, how many of them people want to keep confidential? This is a political hot topic, so where are you? You're, they're not gonna let you get sit there and watch them do things. Mm -hmm. there, there was a, a study um, that came out and it was, uh, I guess it was Surratt and Felstener, and they sat in on lawyers conducting uh, meetings with their clients who were wanted a divorce and they got a, about 20 some of them with a number of turndowns way way more than that well it, it you can't say it was a sample i mean it wasn't but they got in the door and got something mm -hmm. which 
was kind of a miracle. I didn't think they would get that. Right. Um, it sounds like the least bad or AKA best sample you're yeah. going to get. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet what lawyers do in those kinds of conferences is something we should know about. I mean, it's, it's an important thing, but uh, can't do it. And it's the same, same sort of thing. I mean, if you want to study the police, uh, the best studies of the police are people that hang out with the cops and the cops forget they're there. <laughs> Blending into the background and you're seeing what actually is going on. Right, yes. Right, mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. Yep. There's an old joke about how you can use statistics to prove anything. Seven out of 10 people know that. And that kind of sounds like what we're talking about here a little bit, where with the statistics, you have to be careful, of understand where it's coming from and how it might be being used going forward. But it's still important to get some of that information empirically for sure, the law. Sure. Mm -hmm. and, and better than just uh, looking at the ceiling tiles, as I say, that's, that's where too many law professors get their data. <laughs> Uh -huh. There's a now, mirror on the back of their door and they say, I got it, Eureka, yeah, and there we go. Mm -hmm. Got it, go forth. Um, and one of the things we've, we've been doing um, in uh, the contracts area, and it's the kind of thing I think uh, should be done, and, and that is when you've got a big case that's important and so forth, study it. That is, don't just, yes, you want the official report of the court that decided, of course you get that. Uh, nobody has a problem with that. But how about the briefs? And what's happened is it used to be we couldn't do, do it. And there were two law librarians who were wonderful at going and shaking those briefs out of people and letting us borrow them and these kinds of things and, and doing it. Now, of course, they're all online. You, can, you, just, you just grab them. And then uh, often you can find there, there, there may be a newspaper for the trade. When I was doing auto dealer stuff, there, there's automotive news. I didn't know there was such a publication, but you get your hot little hands on it. They cover a lot of what's going on uh, and the background of all of these things. Well, the, the whole idea is we should, we should do what we can. That's part of a new legal realism. That's available and it's the sort of thing any law professor can do. Mm -hmm. Again, it's good to have some notion about the, the limits of what you want to do with that. that. That's good data for what it is, but don't push it too far without knowing what you're doing. I mean, sometimes you just have to push it because that's the best we've got. Right. It sounds like it would kind of give you a bigger picture, but also a messier picture in many ways. And that might be as much that, frustrating. And, and your, your word is one that I've used many times, that there are people who really want neat pure, logical, and so forth. That is, we want a Willistonian book on the law of contracts. <laughs> and the whole idea there is let's put it into a logical, coherent fashion and, and simplify the, the number of assumptions you're making and this kind of thing. Well, one of the problems is we're Americans and we want our cake and eat it too. And the, at, you know, we all should be independent and respons personally responsible. But on the other hand, we should bail people out. <laughs> we believe both those things and they're not totally consistent. <laughs> not at all, not at all. And it and, gets messier and it's harder to put that into a yeah. case book where people are saying, I understand this because it's simple or neat. And that's yeah, yeah. not getting the fair, it's not fair to the students in many ways that way. 
that's right. But but on the other hand, uh, this was one of the things that the uh, one of the courses that the the contracts course at Chicago uh, was one that uh, had sections in the in the materials. Uh, the doctrine of consideration, overgeneralizations, and overcorrections. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, it, it, it didn't describe the law. And, well, I still remember in, in the Corbin's uh, uh, treatise on contracts, he loves to say, although their case is the other way, they're ill-considered. No citation. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never mind the man behind the curtain, the cases behind the curtain. We have these that are not ill-considered cases. So. That's so. right. That's right. <laughs> so how do you see the concept of law and action being taught at law schools going forward? Well, I'm hoping that uh, things like our sociology of law course, I think we were ra raising things such as, can we, what is the legal system as delivered look like. And it's very much a system that at the margins, you have this formal uh, kind of uh, uh, government away, way things that, that they, you know, the legislatures pass the law, the administration does, administers the law, and then we have trials and all that kind of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, you, you'll discover that there's an awful lot of bargaining uh, administrative agencies seldom go to the mat. They try to persuade the people, the big corporations particularly, persuade them to comply. And essentially, one of the things about persuading them to comply often is, and then we'll drop all proceedings against you. <laughs> Not always, but, but there's a lot of that. Um, and then the simplest kind of thing that, that we want, I think law students who are gonna be lawyers need to think about is um, how do the police decide how many, you know, how many of us are there and where do we put them and what do they do? Those are all choices being made and uh, they tend to put them where they think they're gonna be busy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big D word of discretion. About Absolutely. Where is and this is one of the things, the amount of discretion. Uh, what do lawyers do? And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of it is persuading your client to accept a settlement. Because that's the, that's the best. You can't pay me to go to court. Because what it would cost you is, I don't, I'm, and I'm not going to do it for free. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we begin talking about it. Or they're, they're the simple little things. Uh, one of the sadder days of my life was watching the divorce of my son and uh, his now ex-wife and this kind of thing. And there they were before the family court commissioner. And they had, you know, they had all kinds of things. And a document had been drafted by the two lawyers. And the two... The, the two of them did, had, had glanced through it, but they... You know, had they, how much had they, they done with this kind of thing? And the county court commissioner uh, looked at them and said, well, now let's see what we can do with this. If you want to go and try these issues, the first thing we have, and they, he named a date, three and a half months in the future. On the other hand, if you would like to sign it now, we could do it right now. 
There it is. D- dangling the plum of just wrapping this up right now over versus three and a half months of in limbo. And of course they, they signed and it, it wasn't all that pretty. You know, they kept finding out things that they'd agreed to. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And there's the messiness and the, there's some of the, the yeah. And, and we get that. And then of course we get the, 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 the classic thing that is the, uh, limits of effective legal action. I mean, uh, we know that laws are not enforced 100%. I, I, I guess one of the things in our sociology of law class we always used to ask was, uh, uh, if you got in your car and you got out in the freeway and you were heading from Madison to Milwaukee and you rigorously drive, drove at the speed limit, how many cars would pass you? And of course, the students answer always, the wisecracking student always with all of them. <laughs> they might be right, too. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, it, it'd be an interesting experiment, but I suspect. Uh, and if you think about it also, and, and the simple little thing we use as an example, wouldn't it be if you really wanted the speed limit enforced on this drive from Madison to Milwaukee, couldn't the state highway patrol do it at a very low cost? That is, if it's a two-lane going, uh, uh, heading, heading east highway, you get two state highway patrol cars, and they drive at the speed limit, one next to the other. <laughs> You'd have quite the uproar is what you would have from yeah, society. Would, and, and, and we start asking the class, and then what would happen? <laughs> And we had a little of this out on the Beltline when they started cracking down. There were mm-hmm. there were letters and all the rest of the thing. I guess I guess in Honolulu they they had a a big, a big protest when they. I guess it was the, they went to cameras on the uh, on the stoplights, mm-hmm. so that anybody that ran the red light they had a picture of them. Something in that feels inherently unfair to a lot of people. You say, you That's didn't right. really catch me. This is, uh, you're monitoring something that. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there is this. And I, I, I think partly we'll see a, we see a little of it right now where the people who won't wear masks. Mm-hmm. You know, I, going forward and teaching law students and lawyers, they should think about things like that. What, what are the limits of the, of the actions? And uh, after all, governors who might want to crack down, uh, might want to get reelected. And there's right. the, the, the sort of limits how far you go. And, and I, think, I think that's going to be a very interesting thing as President Biden, uh, what he does in terms of uh, uh, trying to enforce various regulations and such. I don't know how much power he has. After all, an awful lot of people voted for Donald Trump. And in fact, there are studies of judges well, the only place I know of in the law school where that was taught was our sociology of law course. And there's studies of lawyers. Mm-hmm. And where do we teach that? I think we've got to at some point. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I'm hopeful about is law schools generally have gone to clinical programs. When I started teaching, there were, was no such thing. And really, Frank Remington was one of the great pioneers of uh, uh, setting up the idea that uh, we're actually going to do something that that's what we would do with the summer was the original uh, kind of idea and you get people who are clinicians and they're they're teaching this and they start discovering things about the legal system and a few of them at least decide they're going to write an article about this 
little thing that doesn't come up in the appellate cases, but it's like, well, the simplest kind of thing. Um, can the people, like teenage boys that get in trouble, can they understand what they're being told? The simple notion of, do we communicate with them? And can we just sort of lay on them something written by a lawyer? Right. <laughs> Not the best way of communicating. <laughs> right. That's something that, again, it doesn't come out in the appellate decisions. We, uh, last October, I, had a, I did a podcast with Michelle Levine, who wrote an article about making a murderer and Brendan Dassey about Absolutely. how much he understood with his, uh, with his inability to understand, comprehend some of the words that were being used. Yeah. yeah. And it's right along what you were just saying about how it doesn't, that doesn't really come out in the decisions. However, if you're watching the transcripts, reading the transcripts, watching the videos of the interrogation, yeah. and then learn about his backgrounds, it becomes very clear there's something else going on here. Yeah. Michelle's a good friend of mine. The two of us love jazz. So we, we, we mm -hmm. share the, he can play the piano. I play the CD player. So <laughs> you need an expert at both of those to have a good jazz session, I'd say. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So I, I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that my hope is that, that Michelle is a good example. of, of and, and she produced an article, and I heard her give a, uh, a talk to uh, uh, my daughter and son-in-law's linguistics uh, program they uh, uh and i was invited along to see that that, that was terrific mm -hmm. it really again it really helps flesh out the context in which the law is being delivered in many ways yeah to understand. And really what it, I, i'm just hoping that that's that that's the push that uh, uh and such uh, just see the see the darn system as it, as it works and again and I, I keep coming back and saying you still have to learn the elements of burglary and uh you know there there's there's some law each of these courses has something to learn there so it's right there's more. That's you're all. not ignoring the elements that you still need you still need the tools in order to apply that to these situations you right. need the elements right. for contracts for criminal procedure or whatever it might be to apply yeah, to absolutely. these situations uh, that's why I, I am not the lord high execution because <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it is dead mm. uh, or, or it's dead like the dead rattlesnake, right? Yes. If nothing else, we have disabused us of that notion that, there, that you are the Lord High Executioner of contract law. That's good. If nothing else, we've laid that to rest. <laughs> I, I hope so. Yes. <laughs> so what do you most hope the readers take away from your work in this collection or broadly? How difficult it is to do things with law, but that law can have an influence. I think... I, as I sometimes put it, to me, Brown versus Board of Education, in many ways, was a disappointment. I mean, I, people, people thought that uh, suddenly there was no problem of race in the United States. It just got canceled out. Well, not quite. On the other hand, but, but it did. It did put on the, you know, people... The Southern segregationists were very proud of their position. They, they didn't hide it. We at least made it so that it wasn't something, you know, it wasn't politically correct to talk about it, we, we, which was some progress, but there still was a lot more to do. On the other hand, Major League Baseball allowed Jackie Robinson to display his talents at roughly the same era. I think that had a lot to do. And now, uh, 
you know, we suddenly uh, are trying to deal with race and these sorts of things. And some of it is law, some of it is just changing attitudes and these sorts of things. It's messy, it's complex. And yet, you can do a few things. You can make things a little better. And uh, you know, you're not gonna suddenly change and make, make life perfect tomorrow afternoon by passing a law or getting a big Supreme Court decision or something like that. But you can make things some better and uh, it counts when you do it. And really it would be better for the people who live in Northern Wisconsin to have an adequate number of lawyers to help them out and such. So if, if you wanna take something away, it is both an appreciation of how difficult it is, how messy it is, and yet not, not a cynical position, not a, uh, a thing. I, I mean, there's a, you, you can read some of the stuff about the rule of law and there's no discretion and all the rest. That's not a world we live in. Does that mean that uh, the whole ideas of due process, the whole ideas of law and knowing above the law and all, doesn't have some influence? It has, and I think it's a, we live in a better society because it's there. Uh, maybe that's just an act of faith on my part, but <laughs> that's where I think we come down. Well, I think that's wonderful. I think the place where the attitudes and the laws affect each other is a very important place that a lot of people don't dwell upon, where they say it's either just the attitudes or in other times just the law, where they want it really messy or very yeah. clean. And sometimes it's right at that intersection of the two. And as, and as they said in, in, in the political slogan, obey good laws. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so where can researchers find more of your work or learn about your career? David Kennedy and William Fisher have a thing called the Canon of American Legal Thought. And this is a, uh, th this is a very modest book. This canon traces the history of writing about legal reasoning and legal decision-making uh, and so forth. These are the 20, these are the 20 most important articles uh, available. Now, you know, all right, non-contractual relations in business is there. And there's an essay on my uh, work by Kennedy, which is in that. So, and that's the canon of American legal thought. And then, when I retired, uh, they held a conference, and the uh, it was Gene Browker, who then was at the University of Arizona, um, John Kidwell, sadly died just about that time, and Bill Whitford, and there were fifteen papers, uh, at least. Some of it was about my work, some of it was inspired by my work and kind of thing. And this is called Revisiting the Contract Scholarship of Stuart Macaulay on the Empirical and the Lyrical. And this is Jean Browker, who, who she came up with the title. Empirical, well, that's easy, that's uh, really good. The lyrical is, I like to use for titles or section headings, uh, songs, and I'm a great Duke Ellington collector. And for example, one of the titles of one of my articles is uh, 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 Things Ain't What They Used To Be, <laughs> which is a famous Johnny Hodges playing alto sax with Duke Ellington. Uh, 
1940s kind of thing. And so, so that's the lyrical part of the thing. She was teasing me on this. <laughs> and it, it turns out uh, she loved opera and she was using some opera. She started using some operatic things on her. <laughs> the lyrical inspiration there. And then uh, there, there's one where I tell some of the stories I told today. It's um, uh, Halliday and Schmidt conducting law and society research, reflections on methods and practices. And a lot of what I've been saying today is also in my uh, piece where they interviewed me um, in, in that one. So I, 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 that's a lot. I mean, the fact that uh, usually what happens is you write an article, you offend somebody, and you, a friend or two reads it, and then it just vanishes. <laughs> it, it does seem to be that if I, if I had influenced a few people to start saying, what does the legal system look like out there, and how does this tie in with what we're trying to teach in fill-in-the-blank, whatever law school course you want, well, uh, Again, uh, I'd be quite happy to have any influence, and that would be the kind that I'd like. I'm certain you have had that influence on many professors and on many lawyers out there. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, Professor McCauley. Do you have any other closing thoughts? Only that. And just the, the, I, I think it, it's, it's wonderful that we have these podcasts, it's that uh, we get this. And in some ways, wouldn't it have been nice if we had them at the time of Willard Hearst and the uh, Yes, yes. I fortunately, at least for Willard Hurst, we do have his oral history available online. So if nothing else, we can listen to his story. We also have an oral history for you online in the same location where you spoke with the archivist here at UW Madison for Uh four or five hours about your career and your life, which is just amazing, comprehensive overview. And we will link to that as well. We want people to learn as much about your career and as much of your scholarship as possible. And we'll get it all out there. Well, great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. As always, we'll link to Professor McCauley's scholarship on our podcast page, including all the books that he just mentioned and the songs. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Professor McCauley. We've been discussing the newly published book titled Stuart McCauley, Selected Works, now available from Springer. Thanks to everyone out there for listening. You can find a link to Springer's page on our podcast page where you can purchase a digital or print version of Professor McCauley's book. For a complete listing of all of Professor McCauley's work, you can also visit the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. Again, all these links are available on the podcast page at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. I hope that by now you're subscribed to our Wisconsin Law in Action podcast, but if you aren't, you can find us in the Apple iTunes Store or Stitcher or listen to our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Thank you all for listening and happy researching.